Hello, it's Kamal Ahmed here, and I'm here to tell you about Energized. The brand new podcast, Intelligent Squared, is launching in partnership with Ipadrola. The climate crisis is the most pressing issue of our time. Temperatures are set to rise more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels in the next two decades, an increase that will cause irreversible damage to our planet. But is there still hope? If humans are to blame for climate change, then we must also provide the solutions. And that's where Energized comes in. Join me as I bring together experts and policymakers to delve deep into the key issues at the heart of the global drive towards net zero and the innovations that promise to accelerate the energy transition and transform the way we live. Just search Energized wherever you get your podcasts. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. The IPCC, the world's leading body on climate change, issued a landmark report detailing how the world is set for temperature rises of 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2040. They said this level of temperature rise was not just inevitable, but the resulting climate change would be irreversible. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said this was a code red for humanity and urged all stakeholders to ensure that COP26 this November would be a resounding success. But what if we gave up the idea that we can save the planet? What if we stop pretending that we could stop the ice caps melting, save the polar bears, or prevent biodiversity loss? What if we lived in a world where we accepted the idea that we cannot save the planet? That's the against-the-grain argument of today's guest Jonathan Franzen. It comes from an online event we held with him just a few months ago that we think is particularly pressing and fascinating. We hope you enjoy it. And now let's go to the episode. Thanks. We're here primarily to discuss this uh, wonderful book. It is very short, but it's also extremely powerful. I want to I want to start with that kind of core thesis. So actually, every Sunday, I go for a long run across South London with a, a senior civil servant. And she's been working on a major government-backed review of biodiversity, one that culminated recently in an international agreement by m- many countries to try and do something about biodiversity. And so she's often talked to me about the tensions between the goals of biodiversity and the objective of reducing carbon emissions. So when I read your essays and your book, it it struck a chord. So can we start, John, with you explaining your concerns about the standard green narrative and policy agenda? Oh, yes. The the, the two-minute version. 
First of all, thank you to everyone who's come tonight. It's a it's a wonderfully rainy morning here in Santa Cruz. It's our first real good rain since last April. And it's been, yeah, so things have been kind of climatically weird. Normally, this is the season when we get our rain that has to last all year. Normally, it starts in late October, and here it is at the end of January. It's finally starting. So that's the backdrop. Yeah, so... Uh, gosh, my mind is completely freezing up for the short version. I have a narrative version, which is that I became interested in conservation by way of becoming interested in birds. It started as kind of a selfish pleasure, but it didn't take a lot of reflection to realize that these birds I was looking at actually need to have a place to live and to breed and complete their life cycle. It became imperative that we pay attention to conservation because there is this natural world beyond our man-made world. And at a certain point, I began to hear from a lot of people in conservation their frustration that the entire conversation about the environment had become focused almost solely on climate. And indeed, if you were green, it was enough that you cared about reducing carbon emissions. End of story. Meanwhile, we are in the midst of a mass extinction event, and that extinction event is proceeding apace. And so far, the drivers have little to do with climate change. So I, I, I've taken it upon myself to say, you know what, something else is going on here. And even though it's critical, yes, that we rein in our emissions, do what we can to mitigate the worst effects of climate change, the fact is we've failed to solve that problem. We had 30 years, we failed. The the cat's out of the bag, as it were. But meanwhile, the biodiversity crisis proceeds apace, and that has many moving parts. There's the oceans, there's the tropical rainforest, There are wetlands. There are many, many aspects of it. And each of those component parts actually consists of problems that you have some hope of solving. So so I've taken it upon myself to say, hey, can we, while working on the problem of climate change, even though it's kind of a lost cause at this point, can we also perhaps expand our notion of what it means to be green? Now, it seems to me, John, that there are two controversial elements of arguments. So one is that we should take biodiversity much more seriously, even if, in some cases, it means not pursuing some carbon reduction strategies. And you want to point out, of course, that some of the things that we've done to reduce carbon have been catastrophic for the environment, like biofuel strategies. Um, And the other part of your argument, which you've just articulated, which is, I mean, I guess the word might be doomed, and that we should stop kidding ourselves, um, It's the second part of that story, I think, that people find particularly difficult to handle, isn't it? Yeah, I I don't think I'm saying anything so remarkable. And in the past few years, I've had more and more company in saying, just look at the numbers. When have we ever underperformed in terms of heating up the planet? All of these projections of where we'd be in 2010, 2020, We've exceeded that. You look pretty much at any measure, melting of the Arctic ice, 
water flow in Greenland, release of methane into the atmosphere from Arctic permafrost. All of these things are actually happening at an even faster rate than the, than the doom criers were, were predicting 25 years ago. And meanwhile, you have, yes, you have the Paris Accord, and I apologize as an American for belonging to a country that elected President Trump, who took us out of that accord. Now we're back in it. Uh, now we have a new president. But really, you look at those numbers, and it's like, that's going to solve the problem? Are you, are you paying attention to what carbon emissions have done steadily for the past, well, 30 years? And have you paid attention to what the temperature is doing? It just seems like, hey, can we stop talking the language of saving the planet, solving the problem of climate change, and start to admit things are going to get really, really bad? And when things get bad, then you say, well, what are our priorities? Yes, you can keep on trying to solve the unsolvable problem because that will have some moderating effect. But I think you need to change the terms of the conversation and say, look, this thing has gotten out of control. It's going to get way, way more out of control. There are going to be shock after shock. So maybe we should be thinking about how to build our resilience in the face of those coming shocks. And that means social resilience as well as natural world re resilience. And for you, John, how big a part of this? I mean, you've written eloquently about your lifelong fascination with, with birds. How much of this do you think your perspective is related to that kind of visceral connection you have with a part of the natural world? There's, there's almost a sense in your writing that you get tired of those people who talk about climate, the environment, greenness in almost abstract terms, whereas for you, the starting point is, is something real, something you admire, something that's beautiful, something that you love. Yeah, love is really critical. And I speak from my own experience. I had basically, I started out as somebody who could have even imagined a career in environmental activism and... And it just made me angry and kind of sick and despairing. And so I just walked away from it. And it was only when I came to birds and started caring about them and caring about the places where they lived that I had a reason to go back and start fighting again. And, and part of my critique of the way the fight against climate change in the public space has played out in the past 30 years is that it has been motivated by fear and by guilt and with not great results to show for it in terms of the world making radical changes in order to avert this catastrophe. And it's, and, and, and meanwhile, you know, the natural world continues ever further to recede. It seems to me if we pay more attention to that, that we might actually have some very concrete, specific reason, not, not the abstraction of, oh, what are the grandchildren, what kind of world are the grandchildren going to have? Because well, I, I don't know the grandchildren. Even if I had them, even if I had a chance of having them, which I won't, I would still never know them. I wouldn't love them. But if you step outside and you go to, a, you know, some little speck of open space that's still there and still has organisms completing their lifestyle in it, you actually might care about that and you might be moved to do something in a way you're not going to be by this big abstraction, which uh, the big abstraction of climate change, which in point of fact, no individual can do a damn thing about. So there's no way to make a personal difference, no way to connect emotionally with it. 
And, and I, I, I keep wanting to say, like, let's, let's find something. It doesn't even have to be the natural world. It doesn't have to be a plant or an animal. It can be some, some aspect of, of, of the social order that you love and think is worth preserving, especially given that we're going to be getting these shocks. Find something you care about and do something about. And that is the antidote to this sort of despair and inaction, I think. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. It's this core of the argument, John, that I find absolutely fascinating. I want to look at different elements of it. So uh, according to the, the, the dictionary, one of the first uses of the word conservation in an environmental context was at an event organized by my organization, the RSA. And it, it seems to me that one difference in the argument about protecting species and ecologies now, and that for ta- tackling carbon, is that the latter argument, the kind of mainstream green narrative actually often wants to accelerate change, albeit change to a green future, whereas the former has a kind of small-c conservatism, which which calls on us to ask why things in nature are as they are, and to ask very hard whether we have the right or the insight to change them. I don't know how it is in American politics, but but, but something that's disappeared in British politics is that old-style conservatism. And actually there are some conservative philosophers like Roger Scruton, who've written eloquently about the notion of, of conservation. So part of your story, it seems to be, it kind of resonates with that small C conservatism, which seems to just disappeared from our, our kind of culture and politics. Yeah, well, I think that's part of the 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 building storm of shocks. I think we, we, we've suddenly found ourselves like we've run off the edge of the cliff, but we haven't started falling yet. And there's this sense of panic. And when you are panicked, you feel like, well, we have to change everything radically. And, and this, I mean, and it, it, it creates a kind of cultural madness. And you see it in many instances. And I would say, you know, the, the assault on the U.S. Capitol a couple of weeks ago was a, was a sense of, you know, this has to, everything has to be completely torn down because there's this massive blah, 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 blah. And in fact, you know what? It's actually kind of nice to have a functioning representative city of government. Do you really want to put that in the hands of people toting um, automatic weapons? So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, conservatism, obviously, as a political, I, I consider myself a progressive politically. And yet I also am aware of how fragile structures are. And those are social structures, but also 
ecological structures. These are, and, and obviously the, the planet as a whole, climate turns out to be a very fragile thing. And, and you, not to be messed with lightly. And, and, and that old small C conservatism, which is, you know, don't mess everything up in your, in your attempt to radically solve everything in one sweep, a swoop. I agree. So I, I'm with you there, Matthew. So one of the critiques of your view argues that, that, that fatalism, fatalism about climate change will rob us of any power or motivation to act. But I, I think, I think you want to suggest, and I find this fascinating and actually very convincing that, that fatalism might actually lead us to enlightenment and to a different kind of almost deeper type of motivation. See, you want to challenge that kind of common sense view, which is that when you give up, you give in, as it were. Yeah. I mean, I think the, there, there's, there's the dark comedy of having been told now for 20 years that we still have 10 years to solve this problem. The, the flip side of that kind of overly rosy presentation, we can do it if we just, you know, sign more international accords and vow to make certain changes by 2050. That, that, that overly optimistic, um, presentation of the severity of the problem, it, it leads to a certain cynicism on the part of the public, I think. Well, wait a minute. You said 10 years ago that we still had only had 10 years. And now you're saying we have that again. The, if you're faced with any huge problem, the first thing you have to do is be honest about the nature of the problem. And, and I know, yes, I've taken heat from activists who say, well, you're just going to discourage people from doing anything. And I think people are already pretty well discouraged from doing anything and, and maybe getting the message through, you know what, this is really, really dire rather than pretending, oh, well, you know, in another 10 years, maybe we'll have fixed some things and it'll all be okay. Action will begin with an honest recognition of the scale of the problem. Well, there's that, there is that job, but I think, but I wonder whether there's something else here, which is to do with the renunciation of ego in a sense. So when I was reading your book, it took me back to, I wanted to reread one of my favorite interviews, which is an interview with the, the, the British playwright, screenwriter, Dennis Potter and, and Melvin Bragg. And uh, Dennis Potter's right at the end of his life. I don't know if you've ever seen this interview, but he, it, one thing that's memorable about it is that he, 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 he intermittently, he, he, some, some of the time he's sipping on a, a little cup of morphine and the other rest of the time he's dragging on his cigarette. Perfect. But, but there's this moment, uh, and I, you have to indulge me. Well, the audience has to indulge me. There's a moment in the interview, and I, I hope you don't mind. I just want to read it to you. Just get your sense of whether there's some connection here with your argument. So there's a point in the interview, and Dennis Foster says this. He says, below my window in Ross, Ross is a, a town on the English Welsh border in the countryside. Below my window in Ross, there at this season, the blossom is out in full now. There in the West, early. It's a plum tree. It looks like apple blossom, but it's white. And looking at it, instead of saying, oh, that's nice blossom. Last week, looking at it through the window when I'm writing, I see the whitest, frothiest, blossomest blossom that there could ever be. And I can see it. Things are both more trivial than they ever were and more important than they ever were. And the difference between the trivial and the important doesn't seem to matter but the nowness of everything is absolutely wondrous. And if people could see that, you know, 
There's no way of telling you. You have to experience it. But the glory of it, if you like, the comfort of it, the reassurance, not that I'm interested in reassuring people, bugger that, is that if you see the present tense, boy, do you see it. I, I wanted to go back to that interview because there was something in the notion that if you can give up the idea that there's some grand plan that can save the world, you might in the act of fatalism, actually see the world more clearly? Well, I would, I would come at it from a slightly different angle. Of course, that's, that was beautifully put. And that was actually, that's a transcript of what he said. Yeah, I know, it's amazing, isn't it? He's, yeah, he's, no. he's got a week to live and he's speaking poetry. <laughs> yes, and I've got a leaden tongue. But um, so you're told at a certain point in your life, you realize, oh, I really am going to die. And sometimes that's not until you get a terminal diagnosis. Sometimes it's just getting older. But what, 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 is, what is the – when you realize, oh, this isn't going to be – I'm not going to be around much longer, what do you, what do, you do? Well, you, it's precisely that. You, yes, you might want to leave some kind of legacy for your grandchildren, but you, you, you want to surround yourself with people you love and you want to – or if somebody you know is dying, just because that person is dying, it doesn't mean you say, well – no more loving that person, you, you kind of redouble the commitment to that living actual relationship with the thing. And, and of course, the strange time we live in now is that the, the, the planet as a whole, this lovely, familiar planet, has that same kind of terminal diagnosis hanging over it. And there are certain kinds of conversations, certain kinds of experiences you want to have when you know that something is not going to be around forever. I just, I just got an email from a friend whose mother had died and he was talking about, you know, she'd struggled with cancer for the last couple of years and, and it became a, and she became a different person. Actually, my own mother became a kind of different person. She, she was done with certain kinds of judgment. She was done with, worrying what other people thought. She wanted to do this, have this experience, see these people, be with the people she loved. And yeah. So and 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 that doesn't actually happen until you let in, really fully let in the mortality of what you're dealing with. I, I, absolutely. And and there was in your short book and essay, there was so many references that I you know, you wrote in the, you write actually write explicitly in the book that, that dealing with the fact that we're facing with climate catastrophe is a bit like dealing with the knowledge, the hideous knowledge, the appalling knowledge of our own mortality. And Ernest Becker, I was thinking of, and uh, here's his book, Denial of Death, again, poignantly written by him while he was dying, and in which he argued that our fear of death drives us to a kind of form of mania. And then I had a much more kind of prosaic reference, which is Jack Nicholson, because I, I kind of thought, you know, we want the truth, but really, as you write it, we can't handle the truth right now, can we? It's important to try. And uh, yeah, I, I, I would give a shout out to a group like Extinction Rebellion because, yes, XR has, has programs and admirably a dual program, both to call public attention to the climate crisis, but also to call attention to the extinction crisis. But as a matter of process, the, the, the various XR chapters really are about gathering together with friends and processing the truth. And because, because there's, because your first response to it is, is fear, denial, flight. And then you, then you grieve. 
But then after you grieve, you're still around and there's still things to do. And, and that's, I think that's, that's the progression that, that I believe the culture is going to go in, in the coming years as, as the truth really starts to sink in more widely. So I just going to ask one more question down this avenue, and, and I apologize to the audience that I've become, I'm so interested, but I am, I've always been fascinated by the fact that fatalism is an incredibly important part of the human condition. And, and I, I think that the decline of religion, one of the problems about the decline of religion is it's taken away the place where we could be fatalistic and we, we, we could handle fatalism and we could deal with fatalism. And that's gone now. And so therefore, Fatalism, which has to be part of how we respond to the human condition, it's just delegitimized. We don't know how to deal with it. And, and that, your argument and the people and the people's critique of your argument took me to that. But I, I wonder, last question in this part of the conversation, uh, and we will bring the audience in very soon, I promise. I hope you don't find this too close to the bone, John, but I wonder whether in any way, you find a kind of comfort in the idea of collective doom. A question that philosophers ask is whether our own death would be less frightening to us if the world was ending too, because in a way, it's death. It's not so much death that's frightening as the terrifying idea the world goes on without us. And and in your work, aging, mortality is a strong theme in your books. I think one of the most chilling accounts of aging and decline I've ever read is in the story of Alfred and Enid in the correction. So, you, you know, you and I are almost the same age. Do you, do you think do you think we might get some illicit comfort from the idea that the human world won't go on for long without us? I, I kind of have the opposite feeling, which was that life is better now in many ways than for most of human history. Even even with the pandemic, life is better. We we live longer. We eat better. Globally, we still got a lot of problems, but there are fewer hungry people now than there have been for for many decades as a percentage. One consolation, When the World Was Steady, which is the title of a, a wonderful title of a wonderful Claire Massoud novel, When the World Was Steady, which is to say when people hadn't taken over the whole world, you were kind of in your own place and life continued in this way, in the same way it pretty much had for your grandparents or your great-grandparents. The consolation for or I would say almost the consolation for having to leave the world yourself was the notion, yeah, this is the way it's always been, and this is the way it always will be. So for me, unfortunately, I have to actually answer no. I, I had ways of dealing with my own mortality, and they had to do with, yes, but another generation will come up behind me, and and... I'm trying to do my little thing to make things better for people later. I'm trying to do what I can for people now. That that was this nice closed system. And when you suddenly have to confront the possibility that, that no, it's not going to go on the way it always has. In fact, there could be a complete end. There could be a human extinction even. I find that makes it a lot worse. That's a, that's a level of grief I hadn't had to prepare for. I hadn't have only really started to in the last few years when I've paid more attention to the to the climate numbers. Yeah, I mean, just to be clear, to people who might think I'm a complete sociopath, I don't want the world to end when I die, but I, it, that's slightly different from... Phil Roth did, I think. Probably <laughs> different from thinking that I might secretly be comforted by the fact that it happened, even if I didn't want it to happen. Your environmental interests and your writing 
have often intersected. I think of Robin's Urban Farm in the corrections of Walter's Dodgy Bird Sanctuary Project in Freedom. Is that simply you bringing your areas of knowledge to your fiction? Or do you see the argument you're articulating now as one that has been building through both your fiction and essays? You know, I they, they come from really different places. It's difficult to go around through the world as it is now and not feel a little bit as Walter did in Freedom. You know, this race is a, this, this species is a cancer on the planet. We're basically, this is the bacterium that has taken over the entire agar field in the petri dish. And it's kind of just, it is, there is something cancerous about the expansion of human dominion over the planet. And, and necessarily, if you care about other species, the human project seems kind of dubious. Uh, whereas for a novelist, novels are about people. And, and I can't write a novel if I don't love the people in it. So there is, there's a, there's, there's a natural tension there. I would say every once in a while, yeah, because I know a little bit about how conservation works. I thought, all right, I'm out of job descriptions for this character, why don't I make him a conservationist? I actually know something about that. I, I don't have to do voluminous research. Or every once in a while, there's a little thing I'm worried about, whether it is the damage done by the invasive species of domestic cats in the United States. I'll throw that in, hoping people won't be too mad at me for doing a little tiny bit of activism for a few pages. But no, I would say they are they are kind of separate projects. Maybe the only common thread would be going back to your notion of conservatism, small c, that that if you are trying to tell a human story about recognizable human beings, you're constrained. You're, I, I don't write speculative fiction. I write about the here and the now, and 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 I have a stake in the continuing availability of imaginative imaginative spaces where people can have recognizably human stories unfolding. And I think that's maybe the point of connection. I also so appreciate being in a natural place. I don't mean pristine wilderness, just someplace where there is wild nature. A sense of here, life is ongoing, and it's fascinating. And and that's, yeah, I think that's the point. Yeah, and I mean, that, it, it's strange your argument is maybe driven by your love of the natural world and of birds, but it's in the end, I think, a profoundly humanistic argument. Andrew from Toronto wants to ask, in a sense, how do you start this conversation at individual level? If you're at a dinner party or on a plane or whatever with somebody who's kind of banging on about the fact we've got 10 years to go and all that about is carbon. And, and you, you want somehow to open up their imagination to think in a different way. If you can be, if you can be, if you could be bothered, how would you start that one-to-one -one conversation? Well, I, one way I do it, uh, well, I do it. I, I, I make, I have, I've made many friends unhappy at a certain point in a social evening by saying, Hey, you know what? <laughs> the gigatons continue to mount up. The feedback loops are already beginning to make themselves felt. And 
it, it tends not to go over well if you do it in a social context. I think it's better to have it in a more in a in a one-on-one way. One of my points of entry tends to be recommending a book or two that lay out why we should not be optimistic about our capacity to avert climate catastrophe. And because I, I don't have all the facts at my fingertips, but I think the the reason I'm in the place I am is that I read, I looked at the numbers, I happen to know climate scientists, and I also know how different they sound in private than they do in public. Privately, they're like, we're fucked. Uh, and publicly, it's like, it's important that we all get on board with, with the Paris Accord, you know? So... So it's, in, in the end, it's not a conversation which... I mean, this, but this is the point, isn't it, John? It's not... No, we, there's, yeah, nothing, yeah. there's nothing easy about what you're telling us. And that's why, that's in why, in a way, I'm trying to get through to the notion that for people who are literally terrified by what might happen to them, were they to ex- to accept the climate catastrophe is inevitable, that maybe what they think is going to happen to them wouldn't happen to them, that maybe they wouldn't actually curl up in a fetal position and start sobbing, but maybe they will go out and start smelling flowers and thinking, well, what can I do to make the, the environment I've got some influence over uh, different? Yeah, I think that's right. Most people do lead lives of quiet desperation, and one of the many obstacles to serious action on climate over the past few decades has been that I've already, you know, I, I'm just trying to work two jobs and pay off my student loan, that kind of thing. It's like, I, I just don't have room in this for my life, uh, room for this in my life. And it, it, it's probably too much to hope that large numbers of people are going to want to let that in until it's forced on them in, in some unpleasant form. But... Again, I'm just going back to XR. I am heartened by by, by their approach, which is literally the, the in Santa Cruz. The way you do it is you call a meeting. You say, friends and family, Sunday afternoon, I want to get together and talk about something with you. So, to Andrew in Toronto, I I, I could recommend that because there's some structure to it, and there's um, there there's there are there are ways uh, to bring it up. I'm not an expert on that. I, I'm an expert in ways how not to bring it up. Um, yeah, one of the things about Exxon is that it manages to give a really difficult message with a certain amount of humor and panache as well. Yeah. You know, and interestingly, I think in the first XR intervention in London, they actually went to the headquarters of Greenpeace and did a sit-in because they, you know, in Greenpeace, and they kind of said that we're going to stay here until you have a conversation about this because your approach is... Well, just as you say, John, it, it, it lacks it lacks honesty. And, and to be clear now, because I, there's a question about carbon capture, and I suspect there are other people who might want to be saying to you, but hold on, what about this initiative? And what about that initiative? And what about what BlackRock said the other day about investment? You're not opposed to all of these things, and you hope they make a difference, but what you're saying is it is too late, basically. Sadly, yes, I am saying that. Although... One of the things you learn when you spend a lot of time in the natural world is that it is incredibly resilient. And if, if given half a chance, ecosystems do adapt. They do try to, to survive. 
And the old line among the climate people was, well, why, why, why focus on the natural world? None of it's going to matter if we don't solve the climate problem. And my, my inversion of that is, well, if all you do is solve the climate problem and you turn the entire world into one alternative energy factory with no natural world left, uh, what does it matter that you've solved the problem? You've killed the planet, starkly put, but there is something to that. You're not antagonistic to electric vehicles or to, you know, or to, 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 to green energy or all that. It's not that you're saying don't do any of that. You're simply saying don't fool yourself with what that's likely to achieve. And, and, you know, you talk about climate catastrophe. You know, there, there is in the end a big difference between whether there are two billion people left or only one billion people left. If there's 20% of the globe that's inhabitable or there's 30%, you know, there are different magnitudes of catastrophe, and it's probably worth doing what we can to make it a smaller rather than a larger catastrophe. I'm 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 all in favor of energy conservation, renewable energy when it when it takes other factors into account. Absolutely, what you what what you don't want is the green continent that the European Union is trying to create, which is a green continent that is. Got a lot of wind farms and solar farms, but no insects. It's like you call yourself green. I mean, Europe is the brownest continent in the world, and yet, and 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 just because you managed to to achieve carbon neutrality in emissions doesn't mean you have actually made yourself a green continent. You might, in fact, make yourself a brown continent. Yeah, I think another dimension of this, John, is, is also. The and I think we're we're getting to understand this better. And actually, during COVID, during this COVID crisis, I think people have become aware of it. Is the incredible impact that engagement with the natural world can have on our sense of well-being. And you know, one of the disasters of the modern world is the way that people, particularly young people, can go through their lives and not have that experience. I know I'll never forget going on holiday. I don't know, fifteen years ago to, and we were staying in a in 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 woods in in Italy, and I was with a bunch of kids, boys from South London, and so they, you know, there was for them light pollution had always been there, and we were suddenly in a place there was no light pollution, and they were typical boisterous 11, 12 year olds obsessed with their video game, whatever it was, and we just got them to lie down on their backs and look at the stars, and it was amazing. I mean, they were awed. I didn't think these boys were capable of awe, or apart from kind of David Beckham maybe walking into the house. And they were awed. And, you know, loads and loads of evidence now about how walking in the countryside, you know, does you good. I've, I've got a friend who has warded off depression for years now with cold water swimming. You know, it's it's transformed his life. He's put away the pills, everything else. And that's, again, part of, I think, your argument, which is that, you know, we can bang on about climate change and the Green New Deal and all of that, and that's important, has to be done, but it's not affecting our well-being. Whereas, you know, when you describe how you exp- how you felt when you went to Antarctica, there's there's something there which is, is revelatory for us as human beings. Yeah, and now you can't go to Antarctica, you can't really go anywhere, and and I think the personal encounters with little things in their neighborhood have become all the more important. Because I'm involved in, in bird conservation, I've seen the numbers. The, the, there are metrics for this. People are much, much more interested in birds now than they were 12 months ago. I mean, it's like 
a thirty percent jump in the number of people who are responding according to various metrics, which I will not bore you with. But I think that's because well, you can't go out into the world, but you know what? The world still will come to you. There will be you know a dragonfly or a robin that that comes and you and you and you get the sense. I don't know if it's consoling, but I think it 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 is a way. Everyone is so isolated now, and there is this way to connect with something outside yourself, outside your screen. If you literally, if you just step out the door, almost anywhere you are. Now, John, you wouldn't do anything as trite as doing writing a kind of self help book. But if 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 your publisher had said to you at the end of of this, could you just do a little page which is five things you should do now? Not not instead of trying to do the right things about climate change, but here are five things you could do now in relation to what you say matters. What might be the kind of things on the list? What kind of charities should they support? What kind of activities they undertake? I'm asking this question because it's kind of linked to what John from Somerset has asked and someone else has said, what's the best conservation organization to donate to? So give us give us a, a, a few tips about about what we might practically do if we're inspired by what you've said. There are some uh, conservation initiatives that manage to check all the boxes. There are some very good groups that are doing forest preservation and and reforestation. There are a lot of groups that are planting trees, but trees have to be planted right. It's not a matter of, okay, yeah, you're going to plant a billion trees. How are you going to do that? And how are you going to make sure that they survive? They're not cut down for firewood and all that. But there are there there do exist groups that that check all the boxes that that are they're in fact creating carbon sinks in the form of either preserving or creating more forest and other kinds of plant life that are also necessarily helping biodiversity they're sensitive to the needs of the local communities because a lot of these projects will be in more tropical areas and one of the original sins of a lot of 20th century conservation was that it really just it, it it saw the people who lived there as antagonists rather than as partners voices that should be heard voices that should be uppermost in fact and and all of these things actually then often will contribute to the resilience of a community in terms of say if you're doing reforestation in the andes well the glaciers are retreating the andes are going to be drying out how do you prevent that? Well, you start putting the forests back on the slopes of the Andes. Those forests will actually regulate and keep the streams flowing year-round, things like that. So there, if you look around, there are, there are groups that are doing work that has a distinct climate benefit, but also has a human benefit and a biodiversity benefit. So probably, you know, that, <laughs> groups like that would be number one, two, and three on my, on my list. But I also think it's really, really important to <sighs> kindness is, is, is what we need. Kindness to the world, kindness to ourselves, kindness to our neighbor, kindness within a community. It's part of my hostility to social media is that it is, it really rewards unkindness and punishes by ignoring it acts of kindness. So that I think any, any activity that, that creates better community, local community is really, really powerful. And, and, and what, 
what the pandemic has given us the first glimpse of is what the world might be like when globalism begins to break down. Because among the, I mentioned a bunch of fragile things earlier, I think the, the system of global commerce is actually rather fragile. And climate shocks are going to, going to, I think, disrupt increasingly a lot of what has bound the world together through globalism. And we are going to be probably more reliant on our communities, our local communities, than we have been and than we, than we are now. So in investment in any kind of kind spirited activity in the community, that would also be on my list. Yeah, no, I think, John, this point about communities is really powerful, which is that, you know, my local community in my part of South London can't save the planet, but we can improve our local green spaces. You know, we have this community I'm in has taken a little bit of kind of wasteland at the end of the road and turned it into a tiny park where people can sit and enjoy themselves so yeah and it's not and it's not just it's not just the the land around you although that's that's critical as well especially if you become more reliant on that land for your food and your water but i think also issues of social justice having racism is a big problem and communities that are torn apart along political lines or racial lines or wealth inequality lines those those are toxic elements and and I consider it a very valid climate action to 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 fight for for social justice, to fight systemic racism, to fight wealth inequality, because again, those are not marks. Those, those problems are not marks of a healthy community. Those are that those, those are unhealthy community markers. So, so Hillary Fisher reminds us that actually this is a point you make in one of your essays yourself, which is that. You know, in the long run, the sun is going to destroy the earth. Mind you, that, that is very much the long run. But, but, you know, I, I do want people to grasp the positivity of your message because at first glance, it might seem not. And can, can you share, John, with us this, the, the Costa, the story of the remarkable couple in Costa Rica? And, and, you know, what really hit me about that was there's two people or one person in particular, the two of them, they, they two, they, yeah, I mean, you focus on him particularly, but his wife's obviously clearly a really important part of the whole thing as well. They, they have made an amazing impact in their lifetimes. Yeah, that, that really was, um, that really was a couple, uh, Dan Jansen and Winnie Hallwalks. They, Costa Rica had on paper an amazing national park system, but it was, a lot of that was paper park and Dan and Winnie basically, recognize that in a poor country, you can't just put up a sign saying keep out around a natural area, that you have to, if, you, if you're being, if you're being, if, if, if local people are being told, no, you can't go in there and do your little small scale mining, you can't go in there and cut down trees, you can't go in there and, and kill animals, they'll say, well, I got kids, I'm hungry, I'm going to do it anyway. So... They have been working for 30 years in a very, very inspiring way to, from the ground up, beginning with community buy-in, to not only preserve dry forest in the north of Costa Rica, but also to regenerate it and, and to do it very, very much with a view to biodiversity because Costa Rica is a, is a treasure house of global biodiversity, a tiny little speck of a country with like 3% of the species of the world. Um, and they are suffering 
because they're watching as the climate dries things out there and, and heats up. They're watching insect populations decline. They're watching species have to move up hillsides where it's cooler to survive. And eventually, they're, they're going to get to the top of the hill and there won't be any place to go. So that's all very discouraging. But in the meantime, you know, they're out there, two people making this huge difference. And there are scores, if not hundreds, of people from the community totally, totally invested in this. And it's just an amazing project. It's called the um, Guanacaste Conservation Area. Don't ask me to speak Spanish at this late point in the hour. But it's a, it's a, re it's a really inspiring story. Look, there's, there's just a couple more strands in the questions before we sadly will have to wind up. But one is, is, is just a kind of a point of clarification, which is the climate catastrophe of human beings may not be a climate catastrophe for all species that, you know, eventually, I mean, the, you know, the world, we, we talk about the end of the world, we're talking about the end of the human world, or we're talking about a massive change in the human world. But I don't think you're one of those people who kind of shrugs your shoulders and says, well, human beings have just been a blight on the world. And, you know, it's, you know, new species will come along, eventually, something else will evolve. You, it, it, you do care about the human race, even though you're pessimistic. Yes. Yes. It's my bread and butter. I'm mostly a novelist. This, this whole this whole environment thing is a sideline for me and I'd be out of work without people. And, you know, I know a lot of people and I really like them. So, uh, but also it's... The point is you're not glorying in this, John. You're not, I mean, there, I sometimes talk to people who seem to me to be misanthropic in a way where they kind of go, well, so bloody what? You know, I mean, like Walter, as you, as, as you said, but that's not where you're coming from at all. Not at all. Not at all. And I think, one thing the human species brings to the planet is a level of intelligence and a level of emotional sophistication that allows – here's finally after however many hundreds of millions of years of evolution, here finally is a species that's able to really appreciate it. I don't think tanagers spend much time looking at herons saying, oh, that is an amazing bird, that heron. Tanager is basically just thinking about the tanager. And what? Oops, there's something. Is there a male intruding on my territory? Better go check it out. That's kind of the extent of it. I think we have a unique ability to appreciate and to articulate, to care about, and to preserve the beauty of this planet. And for that capacity alone, I have to give the human race a lot of credit. So slightly in that same vein and, and just about the last the last audience question I'm going to ask you, and then there's one I want to ask you myself before we finish. But, but somebody asks us, says simply that they're 35 years old and live in London, but they say, should should this person have children? I don't know whether they've got children, but that's anyway, the question is this. What would you advise somebody, given your analysis, about whether they should be having children? Well, as it happens, two of my nephews have new babies in the past three weeks, and that's a very joyous experience for um, my my brothers in particular, and obviously for the nephews and their spouses. I, I, I confess that I am not terribly sorry that I'm not a parent, that I'm not bequeathing such a scary world to to children, but I had other reasons for not having kids. And, and it's, you know, what is it, uh, much ado, you know, the world must be peopled. We're not all just going to 
live to be 70, 80, and then there are no kids coming up behind us. Life has to go on. So I, I, I'm not like a disapprover when it comes to that. You just have to be, you have to recognize the gravity of, of having kids when it's very, very likely that 15 years from now, the world is going to be a scary, scary place, if not sooner. And, you know, but that's, but in a sense, it's a, it's a vital, it's a vital human activity, having kids, rearing kids, giving them a chance. It's just, it's, you know, we need our firefighters and we need our farmers and we, you know, and we need lots of parents because that's the way things go with us. Finally, for me, John, I, I've been involved in a, it, nobody will even know about this, but a little tiny argument with the government that's got into the media this week. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I deliberately did it. It was an argument I wanted to have about something that they'd done that affected me. And yet when it broke out, when it, it got into the media and it was mentioned in the parliament and stuff, I didn't, didn't like it. I don't like being involved in controversy, even though I often kind of do things which which might contribute to it. I wonder, how do you feel when you're dragged into these kind of debates, when you become a public figure, not in terms of your artistry, but in terms of your political opinion? Is it is it something you enjoy or is it something that you find difficult? No, I hate conflict and I, I'm at great pains not to put myself in the way of the hot-headed responses, particularly on social media. It's one of many reasons I'm not on social media. I, it would just upset me because I just like, I become incredibly tense if there's even a little bit of conflict in the room. At the same time, yeah, I do, I do ask for it. But I think that that's, that, that, that comes directly out of my notion of what a writer should do. The writer should try to tell the truth and and if you are if you have a a penchant for better or worse for honesty it's very distressing to witness a dishonest discourse and i and i for example i did feel that the discourse on climate had become so saturated with bad faith and dishonesty that it, it just physically upset me. I was like, I, I, I have to speak up because, because it seems like we're not telling the truth here. And I do it. I don't do it because I enjoy conflict. That's for sure. I do it because that's my job. Yeah. Well, thank you, John. Look, um, what I'd say audiences, even if you've been, sitting there disagreeing, uh, disturbed, even angered by John's argument. I, I would say to you, this isn't an argument you necessarily need to agree with, but it's absolutely an argument you need to understand. You need to engage with it, even if you don't end up agreeing with it. It's a very, very important argument and one which will make you reflect, I think, on yourself and the world uh, around you. And also... Uh, you know, it's been my privilege in preparing for this conversation to read John's other essays, which 
vary widely in their subject matter and many are lighter and more positive than many of the conversations, some of the conversations we've had tonight and wonderfully, wonderfully written. And also, you know, I went downstairs to my bookshelves in the, in the entrance hall to my house and I, I picked freedom off the shelf and I picked the corrections off the shelf and, you know, I opened them up and it was like, it really was like meeting old friends when I opened those books again. So immerse yourself uh, in the world of Jonathan Franzen. John, Jonathan, thank you so much for spending. Thank you, audience, for your participation and your questions. Sorry if I didn't ask enough of them, but I'm afraid I wanted to hog the time for myself. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.